the question that I've been asking myself for a long time is what kind of framing should we have for the dilemmas posed by the technology we're living through at the moment? Um, because, and the technology that I'm interested in is uh, information technology defined very widely, um, ranging from uh, digital technology and the internet on the one hand, and then artificial intelligence, uh, both weak and strong, on the other side. Um, and I think that as we live through the changes and the disturbances that this technology brings, um, I think we're in a, a state of mind which was once admirably characterized by Manuel Castells, where he said, our state is that of informed bewilderment. And I really liked, I really liked that expression. Um, we're informed because we are intensely curious about what's going on. Um, we're not short of information about it, and we endlessly speculate on it, we investigate it in various ways. We, But I think Manuel's point was that we actually don't understand what it means. That's what he meant by bewilderment. And I think that's a very good way of, of describing uh, where we are. Um, and so the question I have constantly on my mind is, um, are there frames that would help us to make sense of this in some way? Now, one of the um, frames that I've explored for a long time is, is the idea of trying to take a long view uh, of these things. Because my feeling is that one of our besetting sins at the moment in relation, for example, to digital technology, is what Michael Mann, the sociologist, once described as the sociology of the last five minutes. And I'm constantly trying to escape from that. Uh, I write a newspaper column every week. Uh, I've written a couple of books about, about this stuff. And if you wanted to uh, find a way of describing what I try to do, it is trying to escape from the sociology of the last five minutes. Now, in relation to, to the internet and, and the changes it has already brought in our society, um, my feeling is that although we don't know really where it's heading, because we're too, it's too early in the, in the change, um, we've had one stroke of luck. And the stroke of luck was that, as a species, we've conducted this experiment once before, because we we are living through a transformation of our information environment. And this happened once before, and we know quite a lot about it. Uh, it was kicked off in 1455 by Johannes Gutenberg and, the, and his invention of printing by movable type. Um, and in the centuries that followed that, that invention not only transformed uh, humanity's information environment, but it also therefore led to colossal changes in, 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 in society and in the world. So you could say that in a way what Gutenberg kicked off was something that uh, shaped the world that you and I, sorry, you could say that what Gutenberg kicked off was a world in which we were all born. Um, and even now it's the world in which most of us were shaped. 
that's changing with for younger generations, but for people like me, that's the case. Um, now, why is Gutenberg useful? Well, he's useful because he sort of instills in us a sense of humility. Um, and the way I've come to um, explain that is uh, with a thought experiment, which I often use in talks and lectures and the rest of it. And the thought experiment is, it goes like this. I want to imagine, I say to my audience, I want to imagine that we're back in in Mainz, the small town on the Rhine, where Gutenberg, uh, where, where his press was established. Um, and the date is around 1476, 78, something like that. And we are standing, you, uh, you, I say to the member of the audience, you're standing on the bridge over the Mainz and you're working for the medieval version of Gallup or Maury Polsters. And you've got a clip slate in your hand and you're stopping people and you're saying, excuse me, madam, so would you mind if I asked you some questions? And here's question four. On a scale of one to five, where one is definitely yes and five is definitely no, do you think that the invention of printing by a movable type will A, undermine the authority of the Catholic Church, B, trigger and fuel a Protestant Reformation, C, enable the rise of something called Modern, modern science, uh, D, uh, enable the creation of entirely undreamed of and unprecedented professions, occupations, industries, and E, change our conception of childhood on a scale of one to five. Now, that's a thought experiment, and the reason you want to do it is because nobody in Mainz in 1478, say, had any idea that what Gutenberg had done in his workshop would have these effects and yet we know now that it had all of those effects and many many more um, and the point of the thought experiment really is as I said it's it's to induce a kind of sense of humility because I chose that date 1478 um, because we're about the same distance into the revolution we're now living through and for anybody therefore to claim confidently that they know what it means and where it's heading I think that's foolish. So that's my, my idea of what it, trying to get some kind of um, perspective on it. Um, and I think, um, I do think it makes sense to take the long view uh, of the present in which we in, are enmeshed. Since then, I've gone back to Germany again for um, an alternative way of approaching this problem of trying to understand and explain where we're at. Um, this is an interesting year because on October the 31st this year it will be the 500th anniversary to the day of the, of the day when Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses to the door, the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, I know there are arguments about whether or not he actually pinned it to the door but we do know that on that day he did dispatch a copy of those theses uh, to uh, his local archbishop. So we may dispute the detail of whether or not the church door was used or not, but, but there, there's no question that this was the day in which Martin Luther took on the Catholic Church. Um, and when I was in Germany last year in Berlin, um, it was impossible not to 
appreciate that for at least German society, uh, 2017 was going to be a really big year. Uh, and the reason is that, that uh, in that society, uh, that act by Luther in 1517 um, is seen as one of the most significant events in German history. Uh, and so the bookshops were full of stuff about Luther and, uh, and so on. And at the same time as, as I was pondering this, um, I was reading the New York Times every day, and the New York Times was on a daily basis um, essentially repeating Donald Trump's tweets. Um, and in a strange way, those two experiences sort of came together, because the thing that characterized Trump, I thought, was that he's the first politician who understood how to use a particular medium. In other words, he understood the functionality of Twitter and what it would do for him, enabling him to, to as it were, climb over the heads of mainstream media and all the rest of it, and he was very, really adept at, at, at doing that. Why does that connect to Luther? Well, the thought was, if Luther were around now, he would also be using Twitter. It seems like a banal thought at the time. Um, but then, of course, uh, thinking about uh, Luther and his, uh, his revolution, one of the things that stands out immediately is that he understood in a way that almost nobody at that time understood the significance of the, he understood the significance of the printing press. More importantly, he understood its mechanics, and he understood um, how effective it could be in getting his ideas across. Um, there's a wonderful history of of Luther's uh, engagement with printing by Andrew Pettigree, who's a Reformation historian. Um, and one of the things that's very striking about it is that most scholars, uh, after after printing became more commonplace, um, they treated it as as a conventional way of of transmitting ideas. Um, in other words, you wrote in Latin, you wrote a book, a sizable tome, um, and that was it. The interesting thing about Luther is that he understood the economics of printing. Uh, if you were a printer in, in, in his time, um, then first of all, paper was a very expensive commodity. And secondly, um, getting a lot of paper in order to print a book represented a massive upfront investment for a printer. But because Luther understood the significance of the, of the technology um, and its economics, he realized that if you took one sheet of paper and you folded it, in certain way, you could get, you could get an eight-page pamphlet. And for that, for a printer, that's an interesting proposition because it means that you could actually, you could create pamphlets that might sell. And if you have an incendiary author, and Luther was nothing if not incendiary, uh, then maybe that would be a good proposition. And Luther understood that and he fed that market. And the result was, as we now know, and he also wrote in German, not Latin. So we, we, saw, we saw somebody uh, mastering a new, a new communications technology and using it, essentially, to uh, transform the world.
Now, th this doesn't mean that... I, I do think that that uh, Luther was an extraordinary, extraordinary individual, um, which um, he was also, in some respects, a deeply unpleasant. Um, one, he was fanatically anti-Semitic and so on. But so, but the point is that he, he, he. I think he had the effect that he had, at least partly, because he was the first person really to understand the significance of a new communication technology. Um, coming home after the uh, after being in Germany, I felt thinking about that and and looking at my my own rather impoverished attempts at communication. Written two two books, one of history of the net, um, another one trying to communicate the essence of the technology for people as I thought they should, as as I saw it. Um, I write a newspaper column once a week. I've written fifty columns a year since nineteen eighty two. Um, so I've been a communicator, but it's not it's never clear as 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 anybody who works in newspapers and writes for newspapers knows. It's never clear whether you're having any impact or not. It's a bit like putting a message in a bottle every week and sending it out. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, so so my 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 kind of assessment was well, perhaps um, I'm not a great communicator, really. Um, so why don't I try something different? And actually, what I what I came up with was why don't I try ninety five theses about technology um, and put them using the technology that we have on 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 the web. Uh, and seeing what happens there. Now, the reason for that is that um, I, I think the idea of a thesis is a very attractive one. A thesis is a strong, clear statement of a proposition. It doesn't mean that you believe that it's right. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it's the most important kind of statement that can be made. Its function is to serve as the beginning of an argument or the beginning of a discussion, preferably. And so I thought, well, that might be an interesting way to approach this. Um, it means that there's no commitment on the part of, of your audience. They can dip into it and dip out. They can, but the, but the point is that um, it provides a, a new way of, of discussing the dilemmas and the opportunities that, and, the, and the strange, unprecedented crisis that this technology is presenting us with now. Well, one, one thesis is um, that technology is the art of arranging the world so you don't have to experience it. And that comes from, from an experience I had, which was watching the Rolling Stones give their, what is probably going to be their last concert at the Glastonbury Music Festival. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of us who, who think they're the greatest rock band ever, this is a big moment, really big moment. Um, and it was treated as such by the crowd on that Saturday night, and so you had tens and tens of thousands of people at the at the at the event at this moment. This thing is never going to happen again. Um, and what was very strange for me was to uh, to see that instead of sort of absorbing it, being in the moment, most people held up their phones. And in that sense, I think distanced themselves from it. And one sees that everywhere. You know, I was recently in Venice, and every single person in Venice appeared to have a selfie stick and instead of looking at St. Mark's or they were looking at themselves with St. Mark's as the background and so on. So, I mean I think that's a, that's, that's a general 
it's a it's a very general phenomenon, and I think it says something about our culture and it says something about what the technology is doing to it. So it's a thesis worth discussing. I think this the this selfie tweeting, mm-hmm. this humble bragging and all that kind of stuff, is so fake that I find it infuriating. And I I kind of group two. There are two kinds of people now. There are those who 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 do that and those who um, have some um, sense of propriety in relation to this. I, I remember once. Um, I had a friend who, a colleague, who who said he always divided people into two categories. Those he would go into the jungle with, and those he wouldn't. And a surprising number of people, and he, I said, what's the rationale for that? He said, because you really only know what people are like when your and their back is up against a wall and it's dangerous. Okay. Then you find out whether, who's got moral courage and who hasn't. For example, one of the conclusions we reached from that was that most academics are probably moral cowards. Mm-hmm. But if you want, if you want to see moral, moral courage in, in action in these situations, don't look to high intelligence. Look to people like college porters, mm-hmm. who often display more of that uh, moral courage than highly trained and very sophisticated and very. Um, so, and his his view was like that, and I think in relation to the behaviour of people on Twitter, there's some kind of dividing line like that too, which I now see. Um, but um, it, it's partly the power of egos, I think, and I guess in in the business that you're in, there are quite quite a lot of big egos. Well, I was I'm I'm obsessed with the idea of longer 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 views of of things, but. Um, Part of the difficulty we have, I think, is that um, this, and this is a, sorry, part of the difficulty, I think, is, is that the, the speed at which some of this stuff changes, and this is and mainly I'm talking now um, about the area I know, which is information technology, um, the speed with which stuff uh, appears to change uh, has clearly outdistanced out <coughs> Uh, the social, the capacity of our social institutions to, to uh, adapt. They need longer, and they're not, they're not getting it. Now, a historian will say that's always been the case, and maybe that's true. Um, I, I just, I just don't know. Um, but, but if you're, um, if if you're a cybernetician, say, and you you look at you look at this, um, cybernetics has has an, an idea of a viable system. And a viable system is one uh, that can handle the complexity of its environment. And for a system to be viable, um, then there are only two strategies. One is to reduce the complexity of the environment that, that, the, that the system has to deal with. And that, broadly speaking, has been the way we've managed it in the past. So, for example, mass production, the standardization of, of objects in production processes and the rest of it, is, it was a way of of reducing the, as it were, infinite variety of human tastes. Henry Ford started it with, you can have any colour for the Model T, as long as it's black. Okay. Well, eventually we had, of course. And, 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 and as, as manufacturing technology, the, 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 the business of making physical things um, became more and more sophisticated, then we, the, 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 the industrial system has become quite good at widening the range of, of, uh, of choice available and therefore coping with greater levels of variety. I mean, one of the things that is, on a daily basis, extraordinary to me is, for example, how many different models does Mercedes make? 
I don't know. Every time I see a Mercedes car, it's got a different number on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, I used to think Mercedes made 20 cars, maybe. Well, my hunch is that they make probably several hundred uh, varieties of particular cars. The same is true for Volkswagen, the same is true. So, so because manufacturing became so efficient, it was able to, to widen the range of choice. And that sort of, but, but fundamentally, mass production was a way of coping with, of reducing the variety that the system had to deal with. Uh, universities are the same. The way they coped with the infinite range of things that people might want to learn about was uh, to essentially say, well, you can do this course, or you can do that course, or you can do this course. We have, a, we have a curriculum, we have a set of options, we have majors and minor subjects and the rest of it. You, we, they compress the infinite variety that they might have to deal with into much smaller uh, amounts. Uh, um, and the thing was that, that most of our institutions, the ones that still govern our societies and indeed our industries, most of them evolved uh, in an era when the complexity of their information environment, the, the variety in it was much smaller than it is now. Our, our information environment, because of the internet and because of related technologies, is orders of magnitude more complex um, than, than institutions had to deal with even 50 years ago, and certainly 70 years ago. Um, what that means, in effect, is that in this new environment, a lot of our institutions are probably not viable in the cybernet cybernetic sense. They simply can't manage the complexity they have to deal with now. And then the question for our society and for everybody else is, well, what happens? What will happen then? How will they evolve? Will they evolve? Um, and so on. Uh, one metaphor that I've used for, for thinking about this is that, is that of ecosystems. In other words, we, we now live in an information ecosystem. Um, if, you're a, if you're somebody, a scientist who studies natural ecosystems, um, then you can, you, can, you can rank them in terms of, of complexity. So, for example, at one level, you could say that we, we have moved um, from, from an information environment which was a simple ecosystem rather like a desert, and it's much closer to something that's now like a rainforest. Um, and it's characterized by much more diversity, uh, by much higher um, density of, of, of publishers and, and free agents, and of the interactions between them and the speed with which they evolve and change. Um, and I think that um, our, 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 most of our institutions have not evolved, our social institutions have not evolved to deal with, as it were, this metaphorical rainforest. Mm -hmm. In which case we can expect over the next 50 to 100 years, we can expect really painful uh, changes in institutions as they have to reshape in order to stay viable. Otherwise they won't be viable and they'll go under. I think universities are suffering from that already.